0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton,
1: originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women To join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show about women and STEM education and a new model for educating the next generation of engineering innovators. We've talked a lot about the underrepresentation of women in STEM fields. It's not news. Um, But to make it real, attach a few numbers to it. A recent Catalyst report noted that women comprise only 35% of the enrolled students in STEM programs nationwide. To make it even worse, that number goes down to about 19%. 19! When we're talking about engineering, engineering tech, and computer and information science. In a world where those fields are essentially generating our future... All the all the the smart things, the whole world that we interact with, having so few women in it is kind of appalling and frightening. Not to mention that those are the jobs that exist in abundance and have higher salaries. So this is really something that we know has to change. Fortunately, today's guest is doing just that. As an extraordinarily innovative educator, Lynn Andrea Stein is helping to redefine not just who a scientist can be, but how we educate them to solve the world's most pressing problems. Lynn's a professor of computer and cognitive science and the special advisor for strategic initiatives at Olin College of Engineering. I'm going to tell you a little more about her and how amazing she and Olin College is before we start. Lynn started out on a seemingly clear and consistent path first earning her bachelor's degree in computer science at Harvard and Radcliffe and then getting her master's and Ph.D. at Brown. She moved over to MIT, where from 1990 to 2000, she made up her way up the ranks to associate professor in MIT's electrical engineering and computer science department. No easy feat for anybody. Never mind a woman. She then became one of Olin College's founding faculty in 2000, leading their efforts to collaboratively transform higher education through her work as the Associate Dean for External Engagement and Initiatives, and then director of Olin's novel, Collaboratory, which we're going to learn a lot more about. She's the recipient of a number of national awards, has served in various leadership and advocacy positions. And in fact, it was thanks to her attendance at the New York Times New Rules Summit as a delegate, where Patty and I were able to discover her and her amazing work. So we've been waiting all summer long to get Lynn on the show. So with that, let me say, Lynn, welcome to Women at Work.
0: Why, thank you very much, Laura. Pleasure to be here.
1: So I want to start off with just part of your early story. When I think about um, you going to Harvard and Radcliffe and then Brown and you know, making your way up the professorial ranks, that's a process that requires a kind of dedicated focus, and you're doing it at some of the world's most prestigious organizations. What happened that you took this big jump off of that path and went to this upstart college?
0: <laughs> that's
1: a great question, and I'm sure you're not
0: surprised to hear you're not the first to have asked me. <laughs> Yes. Um, You know, it was a moment, and to be fair, it was the late 90s, and a lot of my colleagues were joining startups. And I had the opportunity to join a startup that was different. Um, And my department head, when I said to him, I feel like it's a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, very wisely said to me, oh, those opportunities don't come along nearly that often.
1: (laughs) Okay, good. I'm I'm glad that you weren't rebuffed with the, well, being a professor at MIT is one of those opportunities.
0: No, 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 no. It was really one of those things where if I had not joined Olin, I think I would have spent the rest of my life wondering what would have happened if I had.
1: You know, we talk, uh, one of the reasons why I'm asking is because as we look at different people's career trajectories, I always find it fascinating to see what makes you take a change. And take a chance on something new. What was it about Olin? Did you find them? Did they find you? And what was it that made you see what it could be? So
0: I was very fortunate. That very same department head knew one of the folks who was involved even earlier than I was with Olin. Uh, She was our founding vice president of innovation. And she was visiting him for the year, and I got to talking with her. So I had heard a little bit about the project. Uh, it was clear that MIT and I had different ideas of how I should be spending my time, and I was looking at places that would better accord with what I thought was important. Um, and there was nothing like Olin, there were lots of places I could have gone to be conventional and Olin was a clean slate. It was literally when I arrived on campus a hole in the ground. (laughs) We had no curriculum, we had no students, we had no accreditation, we had nothing except a very generous foundation which had decided it was time for engineering education to change and which had concluded that the only way to do that was to start from scratch.
1: So who was involved in this process? Um, was it educators, scientists, um, faculty from other schools?
0: The original foundation was a small foundation, relatively tightly held. Um, I think there were five on the board, and they had been putting up buildings on campuses around the country for about half a century. And they specialized in engineering camp- buildings, but also did some libraries. They, they the foundation was established with the idea of improving education and, in particular, um, making increasing access to the, the person who was the original donor, was a scholarship student at Cornell, really a very generous, wonderful foundation that did a lot of good work. And the leaders of the foundation decided that it was time to turn over what they were doing to a new generation. And they also decided that, it was time to do something big because nobody else would understand the founder's uh, original vision. So they asked a lot of deans of engineering whether they would make changes if they gave them a lot of money. And as compelling as some of the answers were, they didn't really think institutions could change. Um, so the story goes that the, the president of the foundation, his wife, said, why don't you build your own damn college? <laughs> So they did, and they hired some academics to help advise them and then hired some academics to be a part of it. Um, But it was largely founded by the trustees of the Olin Foundation and then uh, with a lot of advice and then ultimately work by faculty members and um, administrators who had been – we had a dean of admission, we had a um, a marketing person who had been in higher ed marketing for a while but who built – these amazing brochures that said, what's even better than getting into Harvard or MIT or Stanford? Turning them all down to build your own college.
1: (laughs) That's great. Um, I want to ask a few questions because I find, in many ways, Olin is a a provocative startup, and it's also potent for how it's both advancing the education of engineering, but it's fundamentally changed a college model. You know, when you start with a clean slate, when lots of people get that opportunity, it's still hard for them to get out of their heads the things that they've always presumed are foundational, normal, have to be there. Things like academic departments. How did you proceed in a conversation where you really could throw out the core building blocks that most colleges and universities have, like tenure and an academic department, to create a dynamic and healthy educational community?
0: I think a big piece of that came partly from the vision of the foundation, and I really need to credit them for recognizing there was an opportunity to do something different, and then our first president and our provost, a lot of leadership that was visionary, and the recognition that we were building in Boston it's not like Boston was desperate for another institution of higher education or even (laughs) another good engineering school. So we knew if we were the same as other schools, that at best we could hope to be as good as they were. The only way to really be different, to really succeed was to be different. And we were established because higher education um, and the National Academy of Engineering and the National Science Foundation and numerous industry panels were saying, There are a lot of places in the world that educate really intelligent, really technically proficient engineers, but they don't know how to work on teams, they don't know how to communicate, they don't know how to lead, and they don't understand the context, including the business and the human elements in which these engineering inventions get deployed. And so we were started from the outset to create to help educate an engineer who would be different in exactly these ways. And I think that led us pretty naturally to things like not siloing departments, but saying, what does an engineer really need to understand not about differential equations or about physics, but about the mathematics and science of how things change, which is what both Physics and the differential <laughs> equations are telling you about. How do we teach people about that in context so that they understand the physical phenomena and the relationship to the the different kinds of models we have and the different ways we have of talking about it, and then can relate what they're doing to these more formal ways of describing.
1: So, in this changed paradigm of really what you're trying to value in education. One of the things that it seems like you've also done is valued, I think, by default of not having academic departments and tenure, is this is not a faculty-centric institution. It sounds like it's a student-centered institution. Is that true? That is absolutely true. How much of that is a byproduct of these values that you wanted to teach, and how much of it was about creating a sustainable educational model? Because it seems like you've sort of cracked the code that all kinds of universities want to, but can't.
0: You know, partly we weren't trying to be what some of the other institutions are, and so we were given license to find our own way. And partly, if you look at, and we did, the best practices in lots of other institutions at the time the best theories about learning. What you find over and over and over again is that learning is a thing that only the learner can do. So education is not about what I, the professor, do. Education, I, mean, I can get up there and give a brilliant lecture. And if the students don't absorb it, what I did is irrelevant it's almost like we have a model in which we send the coach out to do push-ups and then we think that the soccer team should get better.
1: <laughs> That's a great way of putting
0: it. Yeah, and we, so we really flipped that on our head and said, okay, if we know, and we do. I mean, people who are professors at all these other institutions, they know this too, and, and they really try to construct environments in which learners learn. But if we start with the premise that in the end the only thing that matters is the learning the students make for themselves – then what are the things that we can do around them for them to set up, to encourage, to scaffold their most productive and most effective learning? And so instead of thinking about how do we design the syllabus so that I cover all the topics I promise, we said, what are the experiences a student might have that would enable that student to build for themselves that knowledge, that understanding, that ability. And actually a piece of that was preceding the learning with some doing. So not the traditional curriculum in which you learn and learn and learn and learn and eventually you get to apply it, mm-hmm. but a curriculum in which you start by doing something. And as you're doing, if there's something you don't know how to do, you then have an opportunity to learn how to do it. But you're, you're doing it. You're practicing being an engineer from day one.
1: It's just amazing. For those of you who just tuned in, um, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. and my guest today is Lynn Stein, and she's Professor of Computer and Cognitive Science at Olin College of Engineering, where she's also one of the founding faculty and a leader in this really amazingly innovative approach to reconceiving what college can be. If you want to join in the conversation, you want to give us a call, ask Lynn questions about STEM, your daughter's. Education, give us a ring. You can reach us at 1 844 Wharton. That's 844 942 7866. So, Lynn, as you're describing this, you're not kidding. Like you've taken all of these things that are the cornerstones of higher ed as we know it and turned them upside down. You There's no sage on the stage. It's not lecturing. Um, it's not prerequisites that build up before you ever get a chance to apply anything. It sounds like it's all been inverted. Is this part of why you're successful at educating young scientists, or does this have—how is this connecting to why Olin is actually almost a 50-50 split of men and women?
0: I'd like to think that the way that we're teaching, or better yet, creating learning environments, is effective for lots and lots of students. And we are finding that the broad range of students we have who come in benefit from it. Um, The the gender balance was a value we had from the outset, and there were, in our earliest applicant pools, plenty of qualified men and women to join our classes. So we've had the the luxury of being able to recruit classes that have been gender balanced. And then I think that becomes self-perpetuating. So we do have a culture on our campus Um, where the expectation is not as it was for me that I would walk into the classroom and five of every six students would be male. Mm -hmm. Um, And that
1: really hasn't changed very much. I think the numbers (laughs) you quoted at the beginning were just slightly
0: better maybe than what I had, but really pretty similar. Because our classrooms have always been gender balanced, because we do a lot of teamwork and the teams are typically pretty balanced and because students get used to working with one another and across a fair range of diversity and backgrounds, our students come to value things about each other that are not as tied to the stereotypes that might develop in an all-white male Engineering classroom.
1: So there's a lot here that I want to probe because I'm finding this fascinating on so many levels, Lynn. So, you know, when we think about the traditional college classrooms, the kind that I imagine that you were in, um, gender dynamics are alive and well. And it's not just because of the underrepresentation of women or other underrepresented groups, it's also because of norms and uh, subconscious biases about when we raise our hand who we call on, whose voice we listen to. What is it about the culture and the climate of this highly collaborative learning environment that either bypasses those things or re-engineers them?
0: I'd like to say we've got that one licked, but we don't. (laughs) And our students live in the same world as all of the rest of us. And so there is even on our campus a certain amount of that... uh, stereotype, the um, socialization that comes in. And we also have these really compelling examples of in every class, wonderful students of all shapes and sizes and colors and genders who excel as engineers. And so we have at the same time, some of the same social pressures and a reality that is somewhat different and that creates safe spaces, it creates critical masses, it creates good exemplars of um, things that challenge the stereotypes that some environments may find it easy to sustain. So it is a little harder to sustain your notion that women can't be engineers, or that it's surprising that a woman would be an engineer when you're on our campus, because we have a lot of women who are engineers Because <laughs> they're <here>. everywhere. <laughs>
1: right. So, when you, in the admissions process, I want to kind of start at the beginning of the cycle. So you said from early on you had a gender balanced applicant pool.
0: No, we had enough qualified female ah. applicants. The pool is actually not the. Uh, in many years, it has not been the same number of male and female applicants, but they're also not comparable along a number of a number of other dimensions. Um, The female applicants, for example, tend to be a little more Mm -hmm. self-selected. For a girl, a high school girl to decide to apply to an engineering school is actually a higher hurdle than for a high school boy. So what, what we are very clear on is that the admitted students are quite comparable and we are not making compromises to create a social dynamic. We are fortunately choosing from among a significant number of highly qualified applicants.
1: So you're not compromised, but you are conscious. Mm-hmm. And if I understand it right, the dynamic is that you have, while you may have fewer women applicants, the women applicants themselves are probably better qualified because they self-select.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, I don't want to generalize every person in the pool, but yes, it is the case that As- we tend to have um, very strong applicants in the more self-selected parts of the pool.
1: I think it's amazing, and part of why I wanted to bring it into high relief is we talk all the time here about why it is that more environments are not gender balanced, and that the issue is about a consciousness. Like, even if it's about putting people on a panel at a conference, never mind hiring or building a team, that the consciousness can find the talent that really is there. Mm-hmm. That, that and- it seems like the key thing is to be purposeful about going to look for it and make sure it's included.
0: I, I think that's absolutely true. And I also think that if we simply go with the first person who comes to mind, and this is more true on a panel than in an admission pool because in an mm-hmm. admission pool you've got them all in front of you, but on, when we go with the first person who comes to mind, that person will often fit our stereotype, our caricature of what that should be. So, for example, I have for a long time kept a list of interesting exciting wonderful women in my field on my desk so that when someone calls me up to ask me to do something if i have to say no i can recommend some other people and i won't just recommend the first three people who come to mind who may for me as well be men but i can make sure that i'm conscious i'm attending to who who else might be in that pool
1: It's really a wonderful thing to do and a refreshing antidote to the other kinds of lists that lots of women have had to keep in order to keep each other safe. I love that this is a way, and and the the points that we have the same, we all share these subconscious biases and tendencies to pick what is familiar um, or stereotypical. But with the littlest bit of effort, look at all the opportunity you can create. Absolutely. So as you're getting these kids... um, into this amazing environment, it's not just gender representation. You, is representation in other dimensions also a factor? I'm sorry, I did not try to. Just- sorry, <laughs> how socioeconomically diverse? How uh, diverse is, are they racially? Um, internationally, mm-hmm. um, is that diversity as? Um, have you been as successful in constructing that as you have been with the gender balance?
0: I so wish the answer were yes. And it is on some <laughs> of those dimensions, but not on all of them. We are uh, comparable to or better than national averages. And in some cases, where we're, particularly the ones where we're comparable to, we are quite well aware that we have work to do and um, have really, in the last few years, been thinking hard about both how we make sure that we're recruiting the way we want to be recruiting Mm -hmm. and um, broadening the ways we even ask questions so that instead of making emphasis on how many different extracurricular activities have you done, we talk about what meaningful things have you chosen to do outside of your
1: academic work. That's a great and important difference.
0: And and the, not mine, one that I've learned from our Dean of Admission, but one that she's very involved with a program nationally to try to change the conversation about admission so that we don't just encourage students to do more and more and more almost blindly, which also privileges those who don't have other significant responsibilities. Uh, but rather, we think about asking people the questions that matter, which is... How do you choose to spend your time? How do you? What do you value? What are you putting your energy into? What are you making of the opportunities that you have? And how do we ask the questions that let us get at what we actually really care about?
1: <laughs> you mean you're, can, you're approaching admissions like you do your other work as engineers?
0: Very much so. And I, I really think throughout the Olin experience. We try to focus on what's the purpose of asking this question? What's the purpose of having this class? What is it that we want the outcomes to be? And then as much as possible to align how we construct those activities so that they they encourage and enable and facilitate those outcomes. I remember teaching a workshop at a university, I won't tell you the name, <laughs> uh, but I had a senior faculty member who was there. It was about uh, It's called backwards curriculum design, where one of the things that you do is you start out and say, at the end of this class, I want my students to be able to, and you think about what their outcomes should be. And then you work backwards. And I said, and, you know, then you have, now you have your learning objectives, and they go on your syllabus. And someone said, wait, you put them on your syllabus? You tell them what you want them to do? Well, don't they just do that?
1: (laughs) Well, I sure hope so. You mean like be candid and share the the goals that everyone has?
0: And design your experiences so that they enable people to do the things that you ultimately want them to be able to do.
1: (laughs) It's radical. It's funny how radical something that makes so much sense can be. Mm -hmm. So with the minute or two we have left, I just want to back up for a minute because I think as you were describing this interesting difference of A – How do you ask the questions that matter, particularly in an admissions process? Um, This is germane to lots of us with kids in school, how we help our own kids navigate this, and also businesses that, um, you know, there are big differences between kids' experiences one that's why they're motivated to do certain things, but also the difference in their socioeconomic backgrounds and, like you said, the responsibilities that they carry. Can you talk a little bit about how that plays out with the students who are coming your way? Are there kids who are coming from a range of backgrounds?
0: There absolutely are, and I I just heard a story recently about a student who – has substantial at-home responsibilities, and we were talking about the fact that when some of this students' classmates are going to go to the dining hall and have a snack or they're going to go to the lab and, and work on a project, this student is going to be calling home to speak with their siblings because even having come to college, the student has substantial responsibilities to a family in a way that's not just, I just want to remind you I'm here, it's it's actually a much more significant um, and- need obligation.
1: Right, and a fundamental part of who they are. We need to take a short break, but stay with us. We're going to continue talking about the questions that matter, how we ask them, what we do with the answers, and how we put them all to work to solve problems for people, with people, in a more impactful way. Um, I'm going to continue talking with Lynn Stein. When we get back, I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 132. If you want to give us a call while we're out, we'd love to hear from you. That's one Wharton, 844 942 7866. And you can send Patty an email at businessradio at seriousxm.com. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zaro. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And today's guest is Lynn Andrea Stein. She's a professor of computer and cognitive science and a special advisor for strategic initiatives at Olin College of Engineering. For those of you who may not be familiar with Olin... It's not that old in fact i think we could call it an upstart in the world of higher education you know we don't often think about innovative startup in higher ed but if there ever was a place where those two things came together it's olin and lynn is at the heart of this amazing place so lynn welcome back to women at work thank you um so in the first half hour we were talking about kind of how you wound up at olin and some of the things that are really special there and in particular, there's this amazing gender balance and this unbelievably radical way of educating people it, that's collaborative and creative and really starts with the questions that matter. When, as you've gone through this journey in taking these values and ideas um, that inspired you to go there in the first place and you're bringing it to light, how do you navigate getting through the day-to-day challenges, the problems that emerge that were unexpected or expected, and holding on to those ideals.
0: You know, we're fortunate. We suffer from what we hear at Olin like to call opportunity overload, so I do find myself very focused on what there are opportunities to do. We also know that we learn at least as much from things that don't go right, and so a lot of what I find myself doing is trying to understand when something isn't working, how to make it better. And I have a team of colleagues and students who are all engaged in that process with me.
1: Is that a byproduct of the way that you're teaching? Is that a culture that you're creating amongst the administration and faculty? Or is it a combination of the two?
0: I think it is both. I think we have a culture on campus in which we celebrate attempts and we celebrate learning from those attempts as much as we celebrate success because things aren't really ever done. They're just continuing to
1: improve, usually. (laughs) Um, I think of that as a core component of a healthy design process, which is my background. And much of engineering is really a design process. Did it stem from that, or was it more about we're building this thing together?
0: I don't think it's an either-or. I think design is a big piece of how we're building this thing together. And I think that sense of um, enthusiasm can do, and at the same time understanding that Not everything works perfectly the first time. Not everything is... um, It's not about understanding everything up front before you begin to try. It's about prototyping. This idea talks about fail early, fail often. Um, The idea that when we're starting, we're exploring and experimenting. Um, Let me give a different example. There's a model that some people seem to believe about computer programming, which is that the right way to write a computer program is to have it be perfect in your head and then simply sit there and type it from beginning to end. And nobody who's ever written a computer program believes that you can write more than about five lines that way. Almost all of computer programming is writing and then debugging and, then, and designing, and so there's a, it's an iterative process back and forth. And I think the same thing is true in mechanical design, then that's not my area, and I won't pretend <laughs> to expertise there, but this idea that we prototype, we build models, we test them, we learn from what works, and in particular, we learn from what doesn't work so that we improve them. And at some point, we need something that's robust enough to really use. But the first version isn't supposed to be the final version. The first version is a tool for learning. And if you think of your, all of your experiences as being that, I'm going to teach this class this year, and it's the first time I've ever taught it. And so I'm going to ask the students to help me make sure that the next time I teach it, it's better.
1: So you're it's, both involving them in developing it and modeling for them a way of thinking.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Part of what I find so exciting about this is that my background is in the arts, visual and performing arts, and I have to say it's the same principle that's taught in almost every write, art form from you know writing to dance to filmmaking to design, that um, it's a process that you go through of finding your way by generating ideas, refining them, collaborating, and that the spirit of wanting to get to the answer to answering the questions that matter to creating the thing that hasn't existed before comes from this collective effort of making it better together. And it's so exciting to hear that in a scientific context.
0: And I think uh, something else that comes from the arts is this idea of repetition and practice and Mm -hmm. that there's no pretense that the first attempt is going to be perfect but rather that the first attempt is going to tell you where you need to work.
1: Right. And that the first attempt isn't it's not even is it good or bad, it's simply the beginning to get you moving. Exactly. Um, so with this, it it also means that I know when we teach the arts, we have to teach students to hold on to themselves yet leave ego aside. You have all these really bright Open minded kids coming in how do you help them navigate holding on to themselves and putting the ego aside when they're still adolescents that's a great
0: question we do I think many of the things one does in art school including um, helping students prepare for crits and helping uh, we Sometimes we call them crits literally, sometimes we call them by a different term, <laughs> but that idea that your design is being evaluated and that it's your design being evaluated, not you as a human being. We have um, a number of parts of our culture which are not strictly speaking curricular, but are paracurricular and are intended very much towards this acculturation. And we try to normalize um, I w- I'm going to use the word failure, but it's it's not. It's the thing that didn't work from which you can learn.
1: That's an awesome redefinition of it.
0: <laughs> I, so for, when we start this before our students even come to campus, I don't know how much you know about Olin's admission process, and I imagine that you have some listeners who don't, won't know this, but we no, so do tell a us version of admission, which is in a lot of ways very similar um, with applications, but then our finalists are invited to campus for a weekend And this started, actually, when we had no campus, no students, no curriculum, no accreditation, and we had to convince students that they would join our community. We had to convince their parents that they could let their students come (laughs) join our community. But we've continued it since, and it's turned out to be really, really useful. And now our students run. Um, A part of this weekend is a design-build challenge where we ask the students to go for about three hours in teams of people they've never met, and to do something that's actually impossible. Um, And it's really not about how well they solve the engineering problem. So the first year was big pieces of blue styrofoam to build the tallest possible tower that you could. Um, And the point is not how good are your engineering skills. The point is how do you feel about being thrown into this crazy environment and asked to do something ridiculous? (laughs) <laughs> and maybe your tower is going to. I mean, they, it was in the gymnasium, and they were 30 feet tall. And one of them, when we said everybody hands off, one of them went teeter, 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 and fell over. And we gave everybody a prize, including that one I think won the Tacoma Narrows Bridge Prize for the most spectacular collapse. <laughs> Because what we're really trying to do is to say, to come to Olin, we're going to ask you to do some crazy things, and we're going to ask you to do some things that might be embarrassing, and we're going to ask you to do some things that feel like they're pushing you a bit, and, and we're going to ask you to embrace that.
1: So by doing this, you're both communicating, you're giving them a taste of the culture that they're coming into, so that they can be informed about what this is. And it sounds like it also gives you a chance to see how do they respond to this.
0: Absolutely. And if you want to go to an engineering school where you are going to sit in a classroom and somebody is going to tell you how these equations work, and then you're going to solve some problems on your piece of paper, and that's going to be your primary engineering experience, you may not want to come to Olin.
1: Right. It may not be a fit. But on the other hand, if... The way that you look at learning is that it's all a process of getting closer to the questions that you're trying to answer. It's not about right or wrong. That's right. Then That's right. this you could pick that up quickly from this kind of experience and remind them that it can actually be fun and you and won't it, die from having something that isn't successful in the way that you attend attended.
0: And if you feel you're going to learn most from the collaborations you have with the people you meet, and if you feel that you're going to be able to contribute and you feel that it's going to be exciting and then this is a good environment for you. And so I think we do teach our students even before they come that this is the mode of working or a mode of working that we value highly. And then we try very hard over the four years they spend with us to scaffold their growth so that they become leaders in this way of approaching things.
1: So I want to hear more about how you scaffold their growth. Because, you know, I'm, I'm imagining that you've got these creative, smart, interested, interesting kids who are coming in. They're engaging with each other in very different ways than they may have in high school. How do you help create the social con- the social scaffolding and the conceptual scaffolding to help them work together?
0: They do a lot of it themselves at this point, but we also have a student life team, we have a faculty who work very, very hard in order to create those opportunities. So the curriculum from the very first semester is a lot of hands-on projects commonly in collaboration. The teams in the beginning start off very small and they start off more highly scaffolded and they start off more structured, but we're... Asking people to from the beginning engage in project work together Um, They can be short-term so that if that teaming experience isn't as good as it might be you have another teaming experience But we also talk about teaming Um, We ask people in one of the first semester classes. We ask people Before they begin a particular project to think about what they want to learn during that project And then we ask the team to make a contract to support one another's learning goals so we're continually thinking about how do we work together, how do we make this effective, what's working, take a moment and reflect. Um, we, one of the things we do a lot at all on is Plus Delta, which is basically write down stuff that's working and stuff that you wish would change.
1: It's an amazing model because it, even though it clearly contributes to the kind of innovative success you're having with engineering and computer science. It sounds like this is a model for team. like I've never heard that word teaming before mm-hmm. as a verb with your teams, but <laughs> that this is a model that applies to so many different settings where we're trying to get people to work together, yet we don't know how to guide them and support it with that scaffolding. Where and did I, this come from?
0: Uh, a lot of different best practices and then a lot of experimentation on our own and a lot of feedback from our students who are, as you say, our co-explorers and not our guinea pigs. Um. <laughs> So, you know, and, and there's a whole literature in this area, and some of my colleagues are actually expert scholars on some of these topics, and so we've done some original research on our own campus, and we work with people across the world who, who look at these problems. We're continually looking for ways to learn and improve, and, and we're not at all content that we've got the answers. I, as as lovely as the story is that I'm telling you, we have lots of work to do, <laughs> and and I know that there are ways in which Right now, and we're literally starting class tomorrow, we are worrying about whether the things that will happen tomorrow will adequately support all of our students and where are the areas we're falling short and where are the areas we can improve. But by reflecting on that, by making that an acceptable topic of conversation, by making that something that is always available to talk about and actually is something we talk about a lot, we hope that we're making it easier to continue to work on these things, to continue to
1: improve. I, I have to imagine it's going to be successful. Um, for those who just tuned in, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Lars arrow and I'm talking with Lynn Stein of Olin College of Engineering. Um, she's a professor and also one of their founding faculty members and a key administrator there. Um, so, Lynn... As you've spent time there, and as I was reading about the work that you do, you're not just shaping the education of your students. From what I gather, you're doing a lot of work with educators far beyond the walls of Olin. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that started and what it includes?
0: Sure. And we we felt we had the opportunity to create a college from scratch. It was a wonderful gift that we were given, and it also enabled us to step back and say, what are the best? things that everybody around the world is doing? How can we explore and experiment with them? What are we trying to accomplish? What are the practices that will support those things? And as some of us started to go out on sabbatical and and spend time at other institutions, we discovered that those questions, if not always our answers, were equally relevant at other institutions. And so we started to help them to ask those questions for themselves. What are we trying to accomplish What are the methods that will best scaffold our students achieving what we're trying to help them to achieve? And so we began to run workshops, we began to run um, collaborative consultations. Uh, We've always had visitors to Olin because we've always been a little bit of an oddity and that visitor program dramatically increased in size. And so a number of us at Olin created more structured scaffolding for these kinds of interactions with other institutions. And we now have um, some significant funding from a few foundations that have been really generous supporters of this kind of work to try not to export Olin, to create lots of other places that are just like us, but to help institutions become what they aspire to be and to use these kinds of questions and methods and techniques and design approaches that we've used internally to help them to think about what best meets their objectives.
1: I want to back up for a second to this term of scaffolding because I'm thinking that it it bears a little exploration. I'd love to know what some of the details are, the examples of it, whether it's applied to scaffolding to help other educators bring this into their own institution, um, or whether it's the scaffolding you're providing for students. I worked in higher ed for a long time, so my imagination is going with what I think that scaffolding looks like, but I don't want to assume. So talk to me when you think, even just the phrase of scaffolding, talk to me about how it connects to these systems.
0: So, I, I mean, I think of scaffolding as being the structure that enables the thing you really care about. So, the scaffolding itself doesn't matter, but if you didn't have scaffolding, you'd have a lot of trouble getting mm-hmm. the end result. Um, an example of this, a workshop that we ran and still run in some, formation, uh, some, some form but for many years called, uh, we call it our Summer Institute, but it's about designing for student engagement. And it was a week-long program. The beginning asked faculty members; it was mostly faculty members who attended to to step back and think about what their students' experiences were. And then, over the course of the week, we unpacked some aspects of curriculum design. And we were asking people both to go through our program, but also to actively do and design and experiment and explore in the workshop. And they were being put in some somewhat uncomfortable situations. And one of the things that we were trying to do over the course of the week was deconstruct and then reconstruct their own notions of what it means to be a faculty member. To be a faculty member in this context is not always to be the expert, and it's not to have your self-esteem depend on having all the answers? My students often go places that I can't go, and my expertise is to help them figure out how to learn productively there. So, because of that, we were, I think, a little bit destabilizing these uh, the <laughs> attendees, um, and with the expectation that we'd restabilize. And we figured one one year we found that we had gone a little too far. And one of the things that we did was we came in the next morning and said, we're not going to do what we plan to do today. We realize that you've maybe become a little uncomfortable and lost about some of what we're doing. And so we want to offer you these opportunities that we think will help you feel more confident about where you're going and what you're doing. And that was the most effective year we've ever run that program because all of the people who participated in the program said, you really meant it. You're not just, you, I have this syllabus, I'm just going to follow it. I hope the students are along, coming along with me. You're really paying attention to where we are and how we're feeling and what we're doing. And so that experience itself was a, almost a scaffold for their transformation. Because they come and they think that they're looking for our answers and they leave and they realize that it's actually about changing their mindset.
1: Into asking the questions and not looking for right and wrong.
0: Exactly, and so that was that was our way of scaffolding them, and um, by really meaning what we said and living with our principles, which included being responsive to where they were, we were able to, I think, help them appreciate that they too could take some risks and could understand what they were. Doing in a different
1: way. So, one of the things about scaffolding, like you said, it helps enable the bigger idea. And with colleges and universities in particular, bureaucracy is often a version or conceived of initially as a version of that scaffolding. Mm-hmm. In conceiving of Olin, it sounds like you had this great gift of starting from scratch and really thinking about what you wanted and what you didn't want. Mm-hmm to what degree is traditional bureaucracy there how does the administration work to give to enable this kind of rigorous collaborative unusual environment
0: so on our best day we are really open to asking the question but why not right and why not how else might we
1: right and yes our, and.
0: <laughs> and and on our worst days we have rules that get in the way and fortunately (laughs) we have relatively few of those bad days but like every other institution we have things that we've done a certain way now and we've decided that's how we're doing it and um and unpacking can can be complicated and it's funny it's not necessarily the things you think of as the important rules that get in the way so this is not an Olin story but i was on sabbatical somewhere and i was uh teaching a class where they said well we have i want to it was a design class and we had been using a studio at olin and i was going to teach there and then they offered me a lecture room with the chairs nailed to the floor and i said that's not going to work you can't have a design studio in a lecture room with chairs nailed to the floor i need people to be able to sit together around tables Oh, you need to sit around the table. Here's a big wooden table with chairs all the way around it in a seminar room. (laughs) Can't do that either. So that was, it wasn't their rules. It was just their physical facilities. Um, I should say that institution now has some really wonderful design spaces (laughs) um, that they've created. But we too at Olin sometimes create structures that at the time seem like exactly the structures we need and later turn out to be things we stub our toes on.
1: Right, and the and it seems like the real trick is to be able to acknowledge when that happens and question why and rethink it. Exactly. It's also, you're bringing back um, an earlier stage of my own career when I was an administrator in art school. And um, I realized, and I'm embarrassed to say this, that for many years I thought my job was to say no. that um, and, and, and this may surprise some of the people I work with because now I'm very much a yes and kind of person. Some of it was about um, thinking it was my job to protect people, things, the institution, and that the rules were a tool in doing that. Um, and that not realizing the power and feeling confident enough to challenge those things. When you're screening for your own employees, is this part of the process to try and help them see that this is a different place? How do you cultivate this in the people that are working there?
0: Yeah, we certainly hope we do. And and I like to think that that is a piece of what we are expecting flooring and uh, similarly to our candidates weekend for students we have uh, in one of our most recent rounds of faculty we hiring we one of my colleagues created this opportunity for us to bring in faculty in something like that as well where we have a little bit of experimental crazy fun but a culture setting um, will you be comfortable in an environment where we're going to ask you to, to take risks and I I think That's a piece of our culture that we want to continue to grow so that everybody at Olin feels able to explore why not and how might we and um, to be empowered to think creatively and constructively. And I think if we're in an environment where everybody feels licensed to do that, and if our students leave feeling like they can constructively take that empowerment into their future employment, their future opportunities, whatever per- they pursue, I think we will actually have fulfilled the the goals of those who created this institution.
1: Yeah, Lynn, I think you are creating much more than that. You're actually reshaping a culture um, that's enormously powerful and exciting. So thank you so much for joining us today and for the amazing work you're doing.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: If people want to learn more more about Olin, where can they find you?
0: www.olin.edu.
1: Okay. And if they want to find you personally?
0: Uh, Google Lynn Andrea Stein. It's lovely to have a <laughs> name as as people who tell me I've been around since the beginning of the Internet.
1: So. <laughs> Fantastic, Lynn. Thank you again, and thank you, everyone, for joining us. If you have a question, write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bizradio132 and at Laura's Arrow. A special thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, our fantastic sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, Amanda Maffa. I'm Laura Zaro, and you've been listening to us on Women at Work here on SiriusXM XM 132. Check us out on iTunes, Women at Work, search for Zaro, and have a great week. Go take some chances.